All right, hello everyone. I'm so excited about today's guest. Scott Kirchner is the president of Panasonic Automotive Systems of America. He's also the chairman of Panasonic Smart Mobility. Uh, I'm, I'm so excited to be talking to you today, Scott. You have this wonderful blend of technology, engineering, and leadership. What a rare combination. Uh, a fantastic combination. I can't wait to, to learn more about your leadership and your culture at Panasonic Automotive Systems of America. But let me tell everyone this first and foremost. Um, your company was one of the highest scoring companies at the national level. Um, and in fact, in recent years, uh, your company was the best of the best overall in the nation. Um, so there is so much that goes behind that as far as culture and employee engagement and retention and what have you. Um, your company's also been a national um, elite winner. You've been an elite winner in Detroit and in Atlanta. So I can't wait to dive in. Welcome, Scott. Thanks, Jennifer. Um, that was quite an introduction. I very much appreciate it. So, I mean, we're very, very proud of our company and very proud of our culture. So I'm happy to share anything that may help people. So. Um, thank you for having me and having us. Welcome. And, and you know, it's especially more difficult now uh, in these times with the talent war and everything going on. So before we dive into that, um, let's talk about your company. Give everyone here like a 30 second overview, some of the uh, complex innovations uh, and solutions that you all create there so they, they understand what you do. Yeah, so Panasonic Automotive Systems, the global company, is an automotive tier one company. So, uh, you know, we make automotive electronics for uh, what you would expect to be the major OEM. So, you know, Toyota, Honda, Ford, um, Stellantis. Uh, Panasonic Automotive Systems Company of America uh, that I'm the president of is the regional company here in North America. So um, that gives the global company a regional footprint that's end-to-end -end capability, everything from concept and R&D through sales and marketing and product engineering, manufacturing, warehousing, all the support staff. So kind of a, a micro company within a company here in North America. Um, to think about what we do, I mean, the best way to describe it is uh, if you've driven a car, ridden in a car, uh, owned a car, you probably have electronics in your cab of your car that we do. We do infotainment systems, rear seat entertainment systems, uh, head-up displays, uh, various human-machine interface parts around the cabin of the vehicle, and then outside the vehicle, we have a lot of sensing technology like cameras and a growing EV uh, business where we support the electrification of vehicles with things like onboard chargers and, and other electronics. So um, big, giant, tier one globally and a big North American presence for uh, supporting the customers here. And, doing our own uh, uh, innovation. So that, that's us. Uh, smart mobility is a little different. Um, that is a very small, relatively speaking to the automotive company, uh, incubation uh, environment out in Denver. So we have three small companies, startups kind of being incubated. They're, they're focused on creating digital platforms that really uh, address some of the complexities and challenges and friction that are coming up as uh, the mobility world moves to electrification uh, and autonomy. Um, so uh, even though they're quite different on scale and maturity, they share this common belief that our people are our biggest and most sustainable competitive advantage um, and very purpose-driven at, at both companies. So that's a brief synopsis, but you, you get in a vehicle, you won't see our brand name all over it, but I guarantee you our stuff's in that vehicle, so. 
Oh, that's fantastic. It, and I'm kind of proud to say my younger self uh, blew out a speaker in one of my cars because I had it on so loud because the music was so good. So you guys were probably part <laughs> of, well, of, the music. of our premium audio systems like Fender or Clips or uh, <laughs> ELS. I guarantee you wouldn't have blown the speaker out. <laughs> A little, too, a little too loud in my younger days. So I'm so grateful that uh, you provide all of those services because they, they are things that we use every day and they do make a difference and they make a difference in the safety of the vehicles as well. So we are all grateful to you and what you do uh, to, to keep us safe and, and modern. Um, so something interesting about you is you had mentioned that you are passionate about having a healthy and high-performing culture, um, meaning where everyone can be their authentic selves. Uh, you're a large company and um, that's not easy to do. Can you expand on that? What do you mean by a healthy and high-performing culture? Well, I think for us, it really boils down to our cultural model, right? And uh, it's focused, we have a, our vision, our mission, and then, our seven principles, which are shared across Panasonic Corporation, you see some of them on the wall behind me. Um, that's, I think you can only read five of the seven, so we couldn't get a wide enough view. Um, and our behaviors. And so, you know, it's really founded on a culture of accountability, a safe place for everybody to be themselves, to contribute maximally uh, their own uh, capabilities and skills to our mission and vision, um, treat everybody with respect. Um, you know, those are kind of the foundations of it. And, uh, you know, I think it, it, for us, we, I've said this before, I'll probably say it five times in this interview, right? We absolutely believe we're a technology company, but we don't differentiate ourselves because of technology or product. I mean, those things can be copied very quickly. Um, we differentiate ourselves by our people and it's the only competitive sustainable advantage we think we have in the market. And, you know, uh, that's the foundation is our, our cultural model, our vision, our mission, our principles and our behaviors. Um, we hire to it, we fire to it, and we believe in it 110%. And that's why you're here. And that's why you scored so high at the best and brightest companies to work for competition. I mean, it just exudes from you as, as the leader. And we all know that that comes top down. Um, can you give us some examples of maybe some rituals or beliefs that you have? Um, you know, if I was an employee working there, um, what would be some of the best practices that keep me engaged or want to stay there? Give us a feel for some of your uh, customs within your culture. Yeah, so, I mean, we didn't talk a lot about creating the culture, but I, I, it, once you've got your culture really well-defined, right, you've communicated it and you've, you've got the right environment where you hold people accountable to living by it, I think those rituals are important in, in how you sustain it. So, you know, I, I think fundamentally we try to integrate it in everything we do. So every meeting we have, every uh, all hands meeting or real talk session or info session, it always starts talking about the culture. Um, we always put the cultural model up. We always talk about how that cultural model has helped us in the past few days or months or how we need to focus on it going forward by challenges we see. So. We integrate it into all our communications. We integrate it into our performance uh, um, discussions. You notice I didn't say performance appraisals. We kind of got rid of the whole idea of scoring people, right? We, we don't like talking about people as numbers and we had all these crazy arguments of somebody a 3.8 or a 3.9 and just totally dehumanizes the communication. 
and the conversation. So we, we like to focus in performance discussions. Uh, it, we say it's all about the conversation, right? The connection the manager makes with the people, the leader makes with the people, understanding where they're having difficulties or giving them feedback on where they're really performing well. And in those discussions, the cultural models integrated. We talk about our, our values and principles and our behaviors in those performance discussions and you know try to point out where we've seen they've demonstrated or try to point out where they may be challenged and need to you know think about how to demonstrate those cultural uh, elements better um you know we integrated into uh you know our our uh, affinity groups you know we have business impact groups we have uh rise and ben and you know women's group a black employee network a lbgtq group we have a DEI advisory council. We have a charities community, and in all of those, it you know starts with our culture of creating safe places for people to gather and allies to gather to talk about where there's challenges, where we can do better. Um, and then you know I think one of our biggest rituals that we do every year is we measure it. You know we do an employee opinion survey every year. Um, we take it very seriously, break it down by function, by department. We really analyze that to look at where we have improvements or weaknesses, what's worked, what's not working. We create action plans. We communicate with the employees about what those action plans, and that's maybe the most fundamental part of it is, you know, don't get feedback and then sit in your office and create a plan and execute it. Go out and talk to the people about what you heard and what you're going to do about it so that they can hold you accountable for doing those things. Um, so those are some of our rituals, right? It's, it's, it's really grain it into everything we do. I, and I hope everyone listening here realizes that there was literally about 50 examples that you just gave of what high-performing cultures do. Um, and, you know, let's, let's take removing um, performance reviews as one of them. So we have been telling executives for about 10 years, you know, 10 years um, now to get rid of their performance reviews. They don't work. Supervisors hate them. Uh, employees hate them. They don't feel like they're treated as a human. Um, so that goes back to your mission of um, people bringing their authentic selves to, and, and being treated like an authentic human, right? Um, so just that one example is a good example. And you just gave about 50 of them. So it's no surprise to me on why you all score so high. Um, all right, so, so you know, the last three years uh, has been really, really challenging for many, many industries, many businesses. Um, I'm curious of how your culture helped during that time and or what set you apart? Um, what success stories or lessons learned do you have from the last three years? So if, if another leader was sitting here in the room, what did you learn from the last three years on either positives or things that you might have done a little differently? Yeah, I think, you know, when you get into times of crisis, which everybody went through, right? The, from the pandemic, maybe automotive is a little special that after kind of the pandemic shutdown crisis, we've been through supply chain crisis and semiconductor crisis. And we've been in about three straight years of, you know, industry crisis. But when you get into crisis, you really figure out whether one, you and your people believe in the cultural model and two, whether it's ingrained in, in your fabric or not, right? And I think for us, we were really pleased to find out the answer to that question is yes for both of them. You know, we went through what everybody else did in early 2000, right? The industry went from, you know, hot to nothing overnight. 
our sales went from a couple hundred million a month to zero. Our plant shut down, everybody had to go home. We had to think through how to keep our people safe. We had to think through all those things, right? Um, but I think the amazing thing for me is going home and going to this digital world like we're in right now had some strange impact of knocking down what were these residual barriers uh, of cross-functional communications or silos that we didn't even really know we had so much. We thought we had kind of solved that. But for some reason, you know, being in this virtual world and reaching out to somebody that's in another location or at the factory, all of a sudden became just as easy as talking to your neighbor. And the, the coordination and the cross-functional communication improved. And I would have never have guessed that. I mean, I was surprised that the technology worked so well. I was surprised, but I would not have guessed that. And, you know, we set kind of three priorities through this. Number one, protect the people. Number two, protect the customer. Number three, protect the business. Because we honestly believed that we did the first two, the third one would come naturally. And, you know, I'm really glad to see that everybody, every leader, every employee went, you know, operated on those three priorities. And uh, in the end, you know, it worked. We had our highest scoring employee opinion survey at the end of 2000, or sorry, 2020. Um, when we had to shut things down, we had to cut pay, including mine. We had to furlough people, but we did that in a very empathetic way of rolling the furlough so nobody paid a disproportionate amount. And we, you know, paid bonuses earlier from the prior year to make sure there wasn't a cash issue with people. Um, so we gave them a lot of support of unemployment benefits. So we just tried to do everything we had to do with great empathy for the people and the customer and believe that would protect the business. And then, you know, I think the result was uh, we clearly believe that the crisis <laughs> demonstrated that our culture is ingrained in, in our people and everybody believes in it and it works. And I think the lesson that I would share with everybody else is build the culture before you need it. Because if we'd have gotten into that crisis mode without the five years of investment and more than that, but uh, we would have struggled but a lot. And we actually um, came through it and talked to our customers. They're, the feedback, we won awards during that time about customer satisfaction, which was just amazing. And that comes from you know the commitment that people had to protect each other and the company. So I'm, I'm just incredibly grateful and proud of, of what everybody in this company did through that time period. And, you know, it hasn't ended for us. Like we're still kind of just ebbing out of the, the whole automotive crisis now, so. Well, and I'm sure that mantra helped to protect, protect the client, protect the business, protect our team. Um, people rally around uh, a mantra. Uh, so that that helped and, and you use the word empathy um, you know, I know you're humble, Scott, uh, but not many uh, CEOs of your stature talk about empathy in the workplace very often. Um, and I know empathy is, is strong within your culture. And, and if you look behind you, adaptability, humility, gratitude, um, uh, team spirit, untiring effort, I, I mean, it exudes, and, and I really want everyone here to understand what you said about build a culture before you need it. Because uh, statistically, what we've seen at the um, best and brightest is 
um, the companies that had strong cultures and mantras, you know, lesson learned, right? Um, those are the companies that thrived as best they could thrive during um, the pandemic. So um, thank you for that. So, so let's keep these words of wisdom going. Um, so Scott, let's say you write a book. This book is going to young people who want to start a business or want to go into the executive suite or what have you. Um, what would be some of the chapters in that book? Uh, the, you know, you're asking me to not be humble. Um, <laughs> uh, I had a couple suggestions from my staff. Like one of them was shut up and listen. Uh, I <laughs> laughed at that one because that the subtitle of that chapter might be do as I say, not as I do. Um, <laughs> I'm a guy who has to talk to think, right? Which can be very dangerous in my position because I'm, yeah, I'm just brainstorming ideas and my I'm team so yeah. starts taking action. I'm like, no, no, I was just brainstorming, right? So um, that that would be one of them. Um, you know, I think a couple others is good leadership is good questions, not good answers. Right? Your people don't need to hear you tell them what to do. They need to hear you help them figure out what to do so they you know, can learn and contribute. Um, I think another one is, uh, you know, talent and culture is your only sustainable advantage. <laughs> I've said that several times. Uh, you know, the road to trust is uh, authenticity and transparency. We, we, we believe in this radical transparency and authenticity, right? I mean, we want people to be who they are and we are very transparent. We share everything we possibly can that's not a compliant issue. Our compliance issue with our people all the time. We think that enables them to really, you know, contribute. You understand context, you understand trouble. Um, one of my favorite sayings is the more power you have, the less you can use it. <clears throat> if, you're, if you're leading from a position of your, your positional power, you're failing, right? So those would be some of them. I, I don't know. I might, I might be able to write the chapter heads. I guarantee you I could not write the book though. <clears throat> Sorry, it's allergy season in Georgia, so I've got a little no bit of- No worries, no worries. We've all been there. We've all been there. Um, so those are some fantastic chapters. And um, I think sometimes as a CEO, we forget people are watching us, right? And especially those coming into the business, we model for them what, what needs to happen, right? Um, so thank you for sharing those and-, and, and um, you know, I, I really like what you said about asking questions. Do you have a standard question? So anybody that's like, I don't ask enough probing questions. Do you have a standard question you ask to get people thinking? Um, you know, I guess one of my go-to questions is um, explain to me why you think that, right? I mean, I, I want to not just hear what you think, but I want to understand your thought process of how you got there. So I'll, somebody's pitching something to me or explaining how to solve a problem. I, I really don't want to understand just what they think is the problem and solution. I want to understand how they got there, right? Awesome. What options did you consider? I mean, that's another question I'll ask a lot is like, what other options did you consider? and Why do you think this is the best one, right? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, what I what you got to just realize is 99.9% .9 of the time that your people know more than you do, right? Yeah. And your job isn't to outthink them. Your job is to just, make sure and help them that they've went through the right process of thinking through the alternatives and choosing the best one. And, you know, if you, if you, if you disagree and it's okay, let them make, 
what you feel might be a mistake because I'll learn from it, but often you find out it's not a mistake, right? Ownership of the idea and the solution is probably 50% of success. So, you know. And success comes from a series of failures. So we have to let our teams fail in order to figure it out to get the best outcome. Yeah, very well said. I, I like the question, uh, tell me more. Tell me more, why do you think that? Tell me more. Yeah. <laughs> All right, let's shift gears. Um, you know, one of the reasons why we do this is, um, you know, many times uh, people see the title, they don't see the human um, behind the title. And we like to demystify leadership. Uh, and let's kind of shift gears here and just talk a little bit about you as a human. Um, what do you, how do you start your work day? Tell, tell us how your day begins. How I start my work day, honestly, I, I come into the office, grab a cup of coffee, and I have the world's most phenomenal assistant. So I basically walk up to her and say, what do I got to do today? <laughs> That's a little bit facetious, but I, I sync with her every morning. Like, what's on my agenda? What's important? Is there anything I need to be aware of? Anything happened? She's, she uh, is phenomenal and uh, couldn't do this job without her. So she's that's how I start my day. Cup of coffee and talking to her about what's on my agenda. They really are partners. They're they're partners and and not admins. You know, they're they're true partnerships to the. Um, what do you do for fun? Hmm. I like to play golf. Not good at it, so I don't play to be good at it. I just play. You're for good at golf. I, I'm not one person good at golf yet. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I, I like to pretend I'm still an engineer. I mean, you mentioned my background, so I still have hobbies at home. Like, you know, I have a little lab at home, a little electronics lab. I build drones. I still write software to pretend like I'm a software engineer, but um, kind of nerdy, but I enjoy it. I love to play games with my family, right? I mean, it doesn't matter what the game is. My family's, my wife and I are very opposite. So some of my children are more like my wife, which is very laid back and not real competitive. Some of my children are like me, very competitive and want to win. So it's always a little, uh, it's fun when we get together and play a game. And uh, yeah, I, it, I, I, I very often lose, but I, I don't go down easy. <laughs> well, that's why I said that you have a very unique combination of skill sets because you have the empathy, the communication, the drive for success, but you're also an engineer. You like to tinker with things and sweat the details. Um, not not many CEOs have that kind of combination. So that's very cool. Tell us what's your favorite thing you built in your in your lab down in the basement. Uh, I built an FPV drone. So that's a first person drone, right? That you have the goggles that you can see out the drone. It's kind of a racing drone, but I don't race it. I spent probably more time on the simulator trying to fly it. It didn't survive its maiden journey, so it's actually on my lab bench needing to be repaired. But the reason I did it is because I knew I was going to crash it, and I wanted to be able to fix it myself. So <laughs> I knew how to fix it. So and this is why we ask these questions. That that just summed you up in, in one answer right there. I wanted to fix it myself because I knew it was going to break. I mean, isn't that the exploration of a C CEO? I had no clue um, drones raced, and I'm sure many people listening right now who knew uh, drones had races. I mean, that's fun stuff. Very fun. Um, on a more serious note, you know, wellness is a big issue. Uh, especially in the last three years, mental health, physical health, um, eating right, um, 
tell tell us what you do for managing stress and and being healthy and taking care of yourself. Yeah, I'm a big believer in mindfulness meditation. So when I feel myself getting stressed out, I, I wish I could tell you that was one of my daily rituals, but it's probably only about 50% of the time that I do it, uh, you know, preemptively or preventively. But if I feel stress, I'll stop and meditate for five or 10 minutes. Um, I think a big part for me is when I get stressed, I always think about stop catastrophizing, right? Don't take this issue and play it forward for the next three months of all the worst things that can happen, right? Nip that in the bud. Um, and I think another big thing is, is gratitude, right? I always try to look for when I'm feeling really stressed about things that might be going wrong or might, you know, catastrophize into something really bad. There's always things you can find to be grateful about. And if you can stay focused on those things, um, helps you manage your personal stress more. I, I sent some bumper sticker in there. Stop catastrophizing. Hurry before someone nabs it. <laughs> oh gosh, that's great. Well, let's let's end with this. You as the leader and you as a human, um, you said you have kids, you as a dad. How do you define happiness? Um, I probably already used the word gratitude, right? There, there's a really great book um by Steve Acor, it's also a TED talk called The Happiness Advantage. Um, there's a lot of great books on, on um, how happiness is a, a productivity uh, tool, but um, I think the core of it is gratitude, right? I yeah. mean, happy people have a lot of gratefulness. It's about being grateful for what you have and the good things around you and not, um, you know, the, don't know the opposite question, right? Or the opposite word, not feeling like uh, you don't have what you you need, right? right? So I think gratitude is the key to happiness. And you know, I, I'm lucky enough to have a really great relationship with my wife and my my children. And most of the time, I'm always thinking about how do I make them proud, which isn't about success and money and title. It's about you know I don't want to come home and have to explain to them why I did something I sh they wouldn't be proud of. So that that's what drives me. And then it's you know gratitude. So. Fantastic, Scott. It's been wonderful having you on the program. Um, you exude best and brightest, you personally, and the company does as well. Congratulations on your high score and uh, just keep shining on bright. Thank you. Thank you very much. I really appreciate you inviting us here so we could have this talk. And, you know, just we've learned a lot from other companies. So if anybody watching this wants to reach out, we're more than happy to share everything we do and hope that it helps somebody. So. Um, Thank you. That's very generous of you to share your secret sauce and, and help others. So thank you, Scott. Again, keep shining bright. It's been wonderful having you.